Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to American Physio Unfiltered. I'm Dr. Matt Sonricker, Dr. Sean Reister. Hello. And our producer on the keys, Dr. Adam Baker. Good evening. From coming from the Whirly Commons, remember we used to we used to come from over at uh, Coventry Coventry Green. Green, and then we were at Stonehenge. Stonehenge. <laughs> Stonehenge. Stonehenge. Coming at you from Stonehenge. <laughs> the Stonehenge Studios. That's a nice sounding one. Yeah, and then we moved everything over to the Whirly Commons. The Commons of Whirly. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's been almost three weeks since uh, the last podcast. But not three weeks. But it's still yet. only been two. Two. Because we promised we would be back in two weeks. Right. Just two weeks and a couple of days. So if you round down, it's two weeks. I round down. <laughs> in this situation, I'm rounding down. <laughs> Last time we talked about opioids and uh, the opioid opioid crisis uh, facing our society. Since uh, in the pharmaceutical world, our guy Martin Shukreli has gotten sentenced. Did you guys see that? Seven oh, yeah. seven years. Seven years. Seven point four million dollars. I did not see any of the particulars. I am going to guess though. I'm guessing mad tears. Oh, sobbing. Didn't you say he gave like a sobbing speech about don't send me to jail? Yep, he said the last six months in jail has really opened his eyes up and uh, changed his, his perception on things and he wants right. to do good for the world. So he asked for leniency and, and when he was sentenced without the leniency, he was breaking down. Do you think down. he's in like a prison where it's it's not that bad though? I'm like, guessing there's uh, still a chance that there's, there's going to be another eye that gets opened up. <laughs> I'm thinking it might be like the Goodfellas one scene where is it Goodfellas where the, they're just telling the guys to bring them dinner? Oh, and they're they're just they're you know they're complaining about like uh, how you have to chop up the garlic just yeah. right and you got to do that in the sauce. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be that prison pulling out things of pepperoni out of yeah, right? pockets and stuff. I don't know. It'd be no. interesting to see. Someone told me that Martha Stewart, when she was in prison, was like had a courtyard and was like walking outside. Well, she was probably teeping, you know, teaching other inmates how to cook and stuff or make little trinkets out of sewing things. I mean, I guess uh, maybe Martin, you know, he said he wanted to do the world some good. Maybe he can start teaching uh, guys in prison about finance. Sure, finance, math. I bet, I bet if we work really hard, we could probably get our hands on some uh, some footage. Of him teaching class, oh, maybe yeah. in the next couple of podcasts. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. A little skit. But besides the money, the worst part for if you're Martin Shukali is he had to give up his Wu-Tang Clan album rights. Oh, I know. So does that mean we all get access to the Wu-Tang Clan thing now? Or, I mean, was it any good? Was oh, it yeah. released? It's a classic, classic yeah. album. And Little Wayne, the Carter Five album he had to give up. And he had a Picasso painting that wow. they made him forfeit. And like a bunch more million dollars worth of like stock options, and Good he had like a bunch of stock and different pharmaceutical Good companies. For the rest of the world, See, way to go, us. It's kind of funny because like when you say it, like he had to give up this album, or he had to get like like if you're getting sentenced, and like some judges tell me like, yep, uh, that Pearl Jam ten album you had, for, like we're gonna take that, <laughs> just like buy one copy. <laughs> but for him, he had the licenses to the whole thing, like. Yeah, your uh, your privilege to do all that's been revoked. Your iTunes music library is being released to the world. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. It'll be interesting to see what he does with his life. Clearly, he's a very uh, smart individual. 
Watch him escape. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Martin Shkreli escapes from jail. Maybe he changes it around. Maybe in seven years he gets out, starts a pharmaceutical company that somehow figures out. And his first chance to jam it to a whole bunch of uh, really mm-hmm. sick people by jacking up the price of something they need, he's just going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, if you're just tuning in, Shkreli, uh, the guy we're talking about, he has produced uh, Daraprim, a... A drug that um, HIV positive individuals take to. Well, he bought the company. He bought like someone company, else created it, and then he jacked up the yeah. price to like a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, and uh, you know what most people commonly refer as as a dick move. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. but it was a world class level. <laughs> <clears throat> That's why you go to jail. So, what do we got on tap tonight, Doctor Easter? Well, big story that happened in the news the previous week um, uh, was Stephen Hawking had passed away. Um, he died after uh, 55 years uh, living with a diagnosis of ALS. Um, he was diagnosed back in 1963, and uh, I mean Stephen Hawking was I mean, clearly very impressive. Um, his you know theory on uh, his theory on everything as far as tying things together, you know trying to go through uh, like quantum mechanics as well as uh, bridging the gap between that. And uh, like the theory of relativity um, with Einstein, he was a brilliant man, and math is how he used to kind of sew it all together. Um, I've actually never seen the movie, The Theory of Everything, uh, where you know Eddie Redmayne plays him. I guess it was pretty good. Mm. I've seen parts it was, of it. Yep. Yeah. And he um, he came out and praised the movie too, which is yeah. good to see. Like when there's a movie based on the person, you want them to like it. Made him think about his life. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some of his specials, like on PBS or Nova or um, you know Netflix. That carried some of his stuff as well. Um, and you know, he was on Big Bang Theory a couple times. You know, mm-hmm. pretty funny stuff. Um, but uh, I think I think the the big thing with him is you look at somebody who you know, he was diagnosed uh, with ALS in 1963. You know, so early onset because he was only 21 years old. And I mean, the, then the guy ends up becoming like uh, the Lucasian professor. You know, and which is like the, the highest you know, professor, pro, yeah, professor order in England, uh, and he ends up having that position from you know he gets it in like 1979. So this is you know, like 16 years after he's diagnosed. So a little more rare to have this early onset in that that time in your life, right? Yeah, it's rare to have that happen because the normal period of time, um, my my get he had the uh, the genetic component of the disease which is typically diagnosed in folks you know between like 48 and 51 years old um but his case his greatest accomplishments happened after his diagnosis um you you know, books that he wrote um theories that he postulated things that he had uh you know some of his working theories that ended up becoming uh, proven later you know by other scientists that were doing work and following his work you know this is somebody who I mean, I think for a lot of us, if we ran into a similar situation like this, you know, it would be easy to kind of shut it down. You know, maybe, you know, give up on your life goals or find something else to do. But this is a guy who clearly, you know, made the world a better place or at least a smarter place, you know, after um, he was kind of afflicted with it. Yeah, next time I don't feel like writing an ITP or like a semi-annual, think about what he had to do to actually go through and do any paperwork. Oh, yeah. And it makes you feel kind of like a douchebag, right? Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, I mean every time you see somebody who's overcome, you know they've they've demonstrated that perseverance to to just keep working and keep going after things because you know and not necessarily selfish for them. Um, I mean it wasn't I don't think in his case I doubt it was about making his life better. It was about making the world a better place, and uh, you know people like that definitely 
we need to celebrate them, you know, every, with every chance that we have. But I think for a lot of folks, is, uh, there's not a really good understanding what ALS is. And, and ALS stands for starting, right? Yeah. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis? Um, I'm going to give that is one that a son right here. Is that, is that confirmed? confirmed. Amyo? I thought it was off Hey, can you, that. if I Amyo. asked you to say Guillain-Bray, could you say it? Guillain-Bray. Wait, Guillain-Bray. That will forever be one of my favorite episodes. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Yeah, and, and essentially what that is, um, it is it affects um, both upper and lower motor neurons, you know, through uh, the primary motor cortex, and uh, for you, for you know people at home, or you know, if you, if this isn't the type of stuff you study or aren't aware of it, but uh, you know essentially upper motor neurons, those are those are the nerves that we associate with like our central nervous system. You know, so we say that they're upper. It's things that are in your brain, or even sometimes brainstem, maybe even uh, to a certain part down into the spinal cord. But then our lower motor neurons are the ones that kind of come off our spinal cord, run of the, and in this case. It's the nerves that make muscles do things for us, right? And the muscles you think about, like, you know, gripping your hand or standing up or holding your posture, but also the muscles that are involved in, you know, making your lips and your tongue move, making the, you know, allowing you to breathe, swallow. So because of that, that's where the complications come in for people who have it. Um, and because these uh, motor neurons, the, the nerve cells from the brain to the spinal cord to the muscles start to de- deteriorate, uh, there becomes a progressive nature of the disease. So it's a progressive disease over time gets worse. Eventually, the brain loses the ability to initiate and control voluntary movements. So as, as you see, you know, you look at uh, the function of, of Stephen Hawking when he was first diagnosed to when he passed away, you could see that progression kind of take hold. Oh, yeah. I guess um, my understanding was he initially noticed he was like having some fatigue or difficulty. I guess he was on the row team, uh, you know, uh, and uh, then when he got home over Christmas break, they just noticed he was talking a little different. He had like a little slur to his speech. Um <clears throat> Uh, I remember for us, you know, ALS kind of, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it before we're done with the podcast, but a previous a couple of weeks previous, uh, you know, good friend of ours, uh, Al Caffiero, who was, uh, did a lot of stuff over at University of Buffalo. He was a physical therapist, you know, pioneering type guy rather than just working for hospitals back in, uh, you know, like the, like the sixties, he, you know, created his own business and then contracted with hospitals and did stuff. He was a smart guy and he cared about people and he was just a great people person. Um, I remember him telling us the story where he, you know, physical therapists used to do more with respect to respiratory therapy. So the whole act of percussion and just, you know, kind of you know, cupping your hands and boom, boom, you know, just beating at someone's back to, to kind of move fluids and stuff. He just, he said he couldn't quite get the, he said he was trying to do it and it was just, he couldn't get the timing down. Like almost like if you were a drummer trying to drum and he said it was just really weird. And then a couple other things happened and, you know, we're all aware of this. So we have this uh, cool thing where we start to think about the worst case scenario. And yeah, I remember learning about this in school where like your fasciculations, little muscle twitches yeah. are signs, early signs of this type of thing. Every time you get a muscle twitch or your eye twitches, you think, oh. Oh, yeah. And most of us will get that like a, it's a benign fasciculation disorder. You know, it's just and the differentiation with that is like benign fasciculation disorder won't show up with EMG. You know, that's pretty much more local at the, the neuromuscular connection. But uh, something like that. 
you know, ALS is obviously more serious. And it's kind of interesting the way they diagnose it is they really look to see can they find those lesions in both upper and lower motor neurons in like the same limb or in that same tract, right? And uh, then the other way they diagnose it is pretty much by ruling out every other mimicking disorder that they think it could be. And once they've done that, then you become one of those very unfortunate, you know, and in the United States, it's about 5,600 people a year and you achieve your ALS diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And most ALS, when it comes to the end, it's about respiratory failure, right? I saw this stat that, you know, usually within three to five years of being diagnosed or uh, when symptoms first occur, um, that's that's when uh, death occurs. But about 10% of the people with ALS survive greater than 10 years. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously part of it is um, the type of disease they have, how fast the progression is. And then other things that also are a factor is how well is your care and support system? Because um, there's ways to manage. Obviously, people, if you can get occupational therapy, they can help you uh, work on modifying your life a little bit, adapting you to the world. Um, physical therapists can help a little bit. There's um, some research that indicates that exercise can slow the progression. Um, and then on the other side of it is having uh, expert nutrition available. So, you know, avoiding things that are difficult to swallow, eating several times throughout the day so that you can kind of have that in manageable little bits and then certain bits of supplementation. But um, and, sp- and speaking of the funding part of things, this is if you guys remember the ice bucket challenge from 2014. Yeah, this is what it was all about. It was getting uh, spreading awareness for ALS and recognizing the need for funding because we know that what a lot of these people may end up dying from the aspiration getting pneumonia difficulty swallowing the difficulty breathing by the end of life and we just need more research and ways to find a cure or prolong life right right now you know the fda some of the drugs and medication that they use is uh believed to kind of reduce the damage to the motor neurons by decreasing levels of glutamate in the nerve cells, which which helps transport messages between the nerve cells and the motor neurons. So right now, you know, it's shown to prolong survival by a few months, but these drugs are kind of, it's almost too late in a sense, you know, these drugs can help prolong the uh, the inevitable or slow down the progression of the z- disease, but it's not really a prevent, not really a cure or, or a medication. There's no medications out there that can really, um, you know, help your prognosis. Well, and I think the other thing with ALS, it's uh, it is a great mystery for the most part. Um, it's it's not a sheer numbers. It's not a bankrupt your healthcare system like Alzheimer's is. Right, you know, we're talking fifty six hundred cases a year in America, and of those fifty six hundred cases. Um, you know, the vast majority are going to be, those people will be gone in two to three years. Um, currently, there's only about 30,000 people in the United States living with ALS. I mean, it's not a very high number. Um, the other thing that you look at with that, there's, as far as the causes, five to 10% are linked to some genetic components that we're aware of. Um, we understand them. Uh, they don't really know how to take care of it yet, but they have at least an understanding. The 90% of the cases, though, that aren't like familial or they're not, you know, genetic, we have no freaking idea right. whatsoever. Right. There's, 
know, they postulate things like, well, smoking could have had something to do with it or military service could have had something to do with it. But it is a giant, big suck hole of we don't know. And when you see something like a possible cause being military experience, you're like, we have no idea what's actually causing this. Oh, yeah. There's no association between any environmental factor and ALS, but... Maybe but then you, research well. Yeah, and, and the only thing you hit on it earlier, the glutamate. So the more, the earlier we can detect things like that, and it goes for like Alzheimer's too, it's kind of b- protein buildups in the brain. The earlier we can detect that, I'm kind of excited for the future because I feel like we're on the brink of figuring all this stuff out and being able to get rid of whatever we have too much of in the brain. And, and the, other, the other thing with ALS that differentiates it a little bit is well over half of the people affected by it will suffer no mental deficiencies whatsoever. I mean, clearly in the case of someone like uh, Al Cafiero that we knew or Stephen Hawking, they were, they were just as sharp, you know, when they finally passed as they were when they contracted the, the disease. You know, they did just as many amazing things and they were just as amazing a person. They just couldn't move as well and couldn't do as much stuff as they used to be able to do. Um, so that is definitely a component, you know, when we look at that, I mean, when, especially from the, the tragedy side of it yeah. and how difficult that is, um, you know, whereas like Alzheimer's clearly, you know, it's a little bit different because we kind of lose that connection to the people who end up having it because you, they don't have the same, the same cognitive type behaviors. Um, and then the other thing with ALS is just the fact, like I said, 5,600 people a year, um, Holy cow, we just finished talking about the opioid epidemic that was killing like 64,000 yeah, 64, people, you know, a year um, and numbers that were growing like that. I mean, if this was, if we were getting 56,000 new cases a year, you know, and then you had uh, 300,000 people that were suffering it at a time, you know, those numbers would definitely be different. I mean, obviously be more scary, but. Uh, this makes me think of CRISPR. You know, I know we talked about this a few times yeah. on the podcast. Like, how about um, maybe in the future some CRISPR, uh, you know, like gene editing, yeah. gene editing can, no, can take stem cells and CRISPR and which, cut out the. But then it has to start with them determining what exactly is going wrong. Right. There's that, and then the stem cell therapy. Every time we go over some sort of topic, I find that the research is saying. And stem cell therapy is a potential cure for this disease or this. So I feel like that's where the funding should be <laughs> right now. That and when you look at the the average age for onset, you know that that forty seven to fifty two years for average onset for people that had the genetic component, you know, and then uh, between uh, was it fifty eight and sixty one for people that have the sporadic or the unknown mm-hmm. component. So let's Clearly, get to back. Let's, something changes, right? Something changes. Let's get back. To how cool Stephen Hawking was and some of the cool stuff he did. Bring it up a little bit. Real quick, something cool that just happened was Sean, while he was talking, poured Sonnerecker a full drink and didn't miss a step at all. (laughs) That was pretty amazing. Thanks. Yep. I'm like a big artificial intelligence guy's guy you know sometimes you're you're, you're, you're artificial intelligence guys. You're multiple. I can be. But uh, are you like from the movie Her? That was a pretty interesting movie. I thought Hawking said something pretty cool about artificial intelligence. It could be the best human advancement and the last human advancement. <laughs> and it's going to be pivotal in steering the human race. <laughs> that was a really great invention for the, for, the, for the next day that we were allowed to exist. <laughs> he believes that we have to leave the planet 
to to uh, survive longer. If we stay on the Earth, we we will die. Well, we're probably going to just burn through the resources, especially at this rate, right? Jeez. So we got to find somewhere else. We still have many people wondering if, like, the global warming type environmental changes is are real. Listen, my my random reading of like weird facts that may only actually interest me. I was just, uh, you know, they talk about like the polar ice cap and you know rising ocean levels, and I don't really think of Greenland in that consp. You know that you know, it's though that it's that big mass that just looks so huge on a regular flat map, but it isn't as big. But like the glaciers on Greenland are essentially that it's the size of Mexico and it's about two miles thick. Whoa. And if just that ice sheet melted, then all the ocean levels rise by like 20 centimeters, just from that one. And the amount of water that's leaked off of it in the last 16 years, they said, would actually cover Australia up to knee deep. It's like a lot of freaking water, man. (laughs) Wow. How long before Miami's underwater? We got to get a bigger boat. (laughs) I guess guess that's all we can do here. <laughs> Which is a new planet, I'm pretty sure. In like 200 years, we're all just living on big yachts, like big like yacht communities. Uh, yes. Like that horrible Kevin Costner movie, like 20 years ago. What was it? Waterworld. Oh wow. Oh I, man, I'm not gonna talk about no that way. movie. No, I'm, I'm sorry. About that. I don't want to say it was horrible. What if he listened? That would be horrible. Maybe like he's an avid. I, heard, I actually heard he's an avid listener of this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Anyways, uh, other story. So that story was in the news. Uh, the unfortunate passing of Stephen Hawking. Um, another story that was in the news that was um, rather interesting and worked from a couple of different news sources was uh, uh, Anthem Healthcare. And essentially, there. If you had, if you don't have Anthem, we don't have them here. Um, but they cover seventy three million Americans, and they had sent out letters to their members, just kind of notifying them, like, "Hey, seventy three million. Seventy three million. I." You know, I got some other. Uh, I I saw forty million. Like it's very, it's it's one of the biggest insurers. It's and, one of the biggest, but yeah. then they have a, so they have a couple other like subsidiaries with them. Oh, okay. So you know, in total, I think they're the biggest. Yeah, provider. Yeah, they're they're pretty large. They're big. Um, but uh, they they sent out a letter to those members saying, "Hey, if you're going to go to the emergency room, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, you know." It better be a fucking emergency, <laughs> and they were. And it turns out they were serious about it. <laughs> well, I'm not paraphrasing, and the letter said, "Save <laughs> ER visits for emergencies only, or you'll be responsible for the cost." That's exactly what said on the letter. Oh, I thought that was exactly what I said. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty close. <laughs> be. So, I mean, and some of the stories are actually pretty amazing. They had uh, one where, uh, like, a lady in her 30s, you know, goes to the hospital, doubled over in pain, and you know, her mother's a nurse and says, "Hey, you know, you it sounds like it's appendicitis," and she goes in. It's not a pen- she had an ovarian cyst. You know, which had kind of oh, not an emergency. No, not an emergency, and actually not treated as an emergency right. because of the fact that you know they gave her some medication for pain, and then of course she was going to have a follow up with you know her OB, and you know they may take care of it or may not, um, but not apparently an emergency. Right. Luckily for sh- for her, she's in extreme pain. She goes to the ER thinking something very serious is going on, and it's a cyst, very treatable, not an emergency. Like, Thank God, right? Like, whew. Man, 
Luckily, they didn't have to operate on me. Good thing we have doctors and people who know what they're doing to uh, differentiate between. Oh, people that that. went to school and got licenses and are trained to understand if something's an emergency or not. Right. But unluckily for her, they didn't do any emergency-based procedures. As Baker pointed out when we were covering this stuff, if they would have just stuck an IV bag in her. That's all you got to do. One IV bag, or even half an IV bag. But instead, she got socked with a $12,000 bill where Anthem said, hey, we said we were we were serious about this. You're paying. Yeah. So that was one story, and it was one of many. I think about that if that's me. You know, I, I could barely uh, pay a, a $1,000 bill, you know, ER bill. I, so I have, you know, what I think is uh, indigestion or something, and it's not getting any better, and, you know, my chest is hurting worse and worse. If I have this type of plan, I'm never going to the ER. <laughs> and if it really is a heart attack, and and that's that's scary. So like, say you have heart, you have chest pain, and you start breathing heavily. A lot of us, even if somebody came in to the clinic and saw us, we might be like, okay, you should probably go to the ER. Um, that could be Kevin Love just having an anxiety attack. It's literally like <laughs> the same symptoms. And why are we trusting these people that? We, we shouldn't trust people that don't have licenses to decide if something is an emergency or not. Yeah, if we turn it over to individuals to be diagnosticators. Diagnosticians are their Diagnostic- own diagnosticians. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like Dr. Sonnerkers better. <laughs> Diagnosticators? Diagnosticators? I don't even know what you said. I, there was a time we were going to keep track of every word that, <laughs> that Matt made up. <laughs> And then uh, we, we started to fail on that. But I like diagnosticator. Di- yes. The, the fact is, if you're going to be your own diagnosticator, it's not good for you, and it's not good for our healthcare system. <laughs> you could be a dead diagnosticator. I mean, and it's tough. And we understand. Here's the thing. Um, when we look at the overall, you know, why is healthcare just falling apart at the seams financially in the United States? Um, you know, we have, there's plenty of blame to go around. You know, big pharmaceutical companies, um, certainly insurance companies have a huge chunk of the blame, but so do hospitals. Um, hospitals have a just, you know, the, they're not transparent with anything they do. They have a lot of hidden costs and they jack up costs on things because they're trying to make a buck all over the place. And when you look at emergency room visits in America, there was in 2017, there was 141 million emergency room visits you know the population of america is like 340 million right um of those 141 11.2 million of those people were actually admitted now keep in mind people are admitted to the hospital you know not coming through the er as well but so 11.2 million of those people so almost not quite 10 percent but around eight and a half percent of those people. And if you're admitted to the hospital, it means you definitely should have went to the hospital. But you can also have times where you went and it's serious. And you, it's just as long as you're out within 24 hours or a little over that, you're not technically admitted. Uh, also, 1.8 million of those visits were critical visits. So definitely people who should have gone. But when you put that decision making into the hands of people who aren't, you know, that's not what they do. You know, they're not physicians, they're not physician assistants, they're not, you know, they're, they're not medical people. Uh, you're really asking for now if they're going to start making financial decisions like, well, uh, it does hurt a lot, you know, but there's not a lot of blood. So I'll see maybe tomorrow. If it hasn't gotten better by tomorrow, I'll go tomorrow. You know, well, you know, they're dead tomorrow. So we don't want people making choices like that. 
right? Um, like you said. Uh, Diagnostic codes are what Anthem uses to figure out if it was a life-threatening situation, a, a valid ER uh, visit. And, you know, to me that seems that seems very interesting because you go in with chest pain. And how many codes are in ICD-10? Oh, my God. It's like, isn't that 14,500 codes? And so, it's got room to grow. So for you guys out there who are not sure what uh, we're talking about, as a healthcare provider, there's all these different codes, medical codes that – you put on your evaluation or your examina- examination that shows the health care insurance uh, company, you know, what you did, what their diagnosis is, you know, how you treated it. So the healthcare company uses that diagnostic code to see if your what you had was actually um, valid of an ER visit. What we're trying to say is the ER doctor, what code he puts on ex- his examination, then gets sent to the insurer, and the insurer decides if that's uh, worth an ER visit. So someone goes in with chest pain or um, abdominal pain, and then it turns out to be a uh, ovarian cyst, not indicative of an ER visit because it's not a life-threatening incident. Boom, this poor girl gets stuck with a $12,000 bill, but it doesn't show the whole story that she's in extreme abdominal pain and she goes to the ER thinking something, you know, she has an appendicitis or something serious going on, but the insurer, all they see is the diagnostic code says ovarian cyst, not a life-threatening scenario, so again, she gets stuck with the bill. Oh, it's like asking a patient to determine whether or not they have like a costal cartilage defect or if they have a pulmonary embolism. You know, if uh, if the cause of their pain is like actually some sort of coronary problem or they just had a uh, a gallbladder referral pattern to their right shoulder area. That's just, These are the type of things that normal, regular patients probably shouldn't be tasked with figuring out. Right. And it's easy for us as healthcare providers to, uh, you know, point the finger at the insurer, but there's blame to go around here, like Dr. Easter said. I mean, part of the reason um, that the insurers have to do so much work to keep the costs low is because the hospital fees and the direct ER fees are so astronomical in nature. And a lot of times the hospitals keep this secret to themselves. They don't want this public knowledge. They don't want Blue Cross Blue Shield to know what they charge for a rabies shot or a um, antiphylactic type medication because they can make their own fee schedule they can make their own price for certain things and if they make that public then that could change uh you know public perception and that can change things so there there's multiple um areas of blame here and to me personally it comes back to transparency you know hospitals try to keep er fee schedules and and what they're charging people for certain um, procedures and healthcare secret so that um, so that they can increase their revenue, increase their profitability as much as they can, which in turn makes the insurers do everything they can to keep their costs low. So it's like a constant battle. Yeah, there. When it comes to healthcare, there is and should not be any sort of proprietary secret type stuff. I mean, this is you know we're trying to benefit all of us, mm. and uh, the lack of transparency is what allows for greed and graft 
take over the system. And this is a system where we quite honestly don't have room for that. Mm-hmm. So um, I know previously, I mean, the different administrations have talked about creating transparency. Matter of fact, when uh, the Affordable Health Care Act came into being and we had more plans with higher uh, deductibles, uh, all hospitals were supposed to publish their entire fee schedules so that if you were picking where you were going to go for, say, physical therapy, you need to know what the reimbursement rate is because you're paying it because you're paying the first two grand or whatever it is. And no one ever did it. It, cause that was on the other side. Remember all the provider agreements. We're not allowed to talk about what we get reimbursed. So you have provider agreements that say you can't share what you're going to get paid. I mean, you could share your fee schedule, but not what your reimbursement would be. But then you had the ACA, which said that you had to share what your reimbursement was going to be because people had to know what they were going to end up paying because they were paying the front $2,000. It wasn't just a co-pay situation anymore. So that never really came to be. But uh, it's interesting kind of where we'll see because you you see lawmakers that are campaigning and not many, by the way. That's what I was just going to say. Why can't we get a lawmaker or somebody who wants to be in that position that puts a law in place that everyone has to be transparent? They have to share what their fee schedule well, is. They have to share everything. There's two things. There's two sides to laws. There's one, we make a law, and two, we enforce a law. So how do you enforce it? And if there, one, if there aren't any penalties and it's, you know, very difficult to enforce. And the other side is if you strip away any agency that would be responsible for enforcing it, you make it really difficult. So it's one of the things that we've definitely done, um, you know, with respect to government agencies and things lately. So, yeah, I thought this, I, I was looking for some data, you know, from some government websites and healthcare websites on, you know, just how much um, health insurance costs us and how much um, healthcare spending has increased over the years. And I thought this was interesting. Between 1960 and 2016, this is an inflation adjusted average. In 1960, the average person per year spent $1,248. Now, remember, this is inflation-adjusted um, dollars here. Really, it was $151 in 1960. Right. But with inflation-adjusted, $1,248. In 2016, per person per year, <laughs> it's, it's going to be laughable. It's about 10 times as much. We're talking about 11 grand <clears throat> per person per year for healthcare. So, and that average includes those of you out there who haven't seen a doctor in years and haven't spent a penny on anything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's pretty insane. And you know, it's it's not a matter of. I think I've said this before on this podcast. It's not a matter of if it's going to get out of control or bankrupt or cause huge societal impact. It's It's a matter of when. When is that going to hit the ceiling and enough? is enough and it just we can't afford this spiking and in, in increase and in the healthcare groups, services. The groups that are making the most and pulling the most out, they're just like, how long can we continue to keep pulling out these gobs and gobs of money before this whole thing breaks apart? And as long as they got theirs, they'll be fine. It's unfortunate. But it is also the reality of it. And anybody who thinks that it's not on pace to become broken, or anyone who thinks it's the best healthcare system in the world those are beliefs that I am telling you do not hold up to the challenge of examining a belief structure because <laughs> they're just not true. You know, when you introduce the facts, it gets out of hand. Uh, and you know what the worst part is, is uh, the resources are here in this country to fix it. So 
Uh, that's the uh, man. Finances and healthcare stories. That's easy depressing. Dang, this is down today. This is next week. <laughs> next time is not going to be so down. Wow. Can we find a positive healthcare financial story though? Let's see if we can buy the Wu Tang album. We we'll talk about that next time. <laughs> how much was how much does that cost? <laughs> Just play it. Oh my gosh! So our last segment for uh, people who still care, we thought it would be uh, uh, interesting to just kind of talk about um, you know, the impact of uh, of people on on us as caretakers, or even on anybody else who's just known anybody, but someone who has a physical disability, um, you know, even a physical disability that might affect someone's cognitive function a little bit. But you know, physical disabilities and they have a way of doing that, especially if it's. Uh, that starts off when people are younger in life, and our physical movement has a lot to do with our cognitive our cognitive development. But um, even just changing uh, someone's uh, you know viewpoint on the world or where they can see stuff. I know for me, we talked about um, we talked about Al, and Al Caffier was a he's a pretty important guy to me when I was in PT school. He uh, he would he still drove back then. He had his uh, cool little van, and he could just drive his car in there and. I mean, I guess he banged into lots of cars and parking lots and stuff like that, but uh, he always left notes and stuff, I guess. Like, yeah, it was just L. Yeah, <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, oopsie. Here's my insurance information. But uh, he came in to see us in our first lab, and uh, you, you can practice transferring people on your your, your you know your college classmates. Yeah, it's just not as good. And he, he came in there, and he knew what he was doing. He'd done it a lot, and he let us transfer him. Out of the wheelchair, out of the mat and back, told us all of his stories. And then later I was lucky enough to be able to work with him, uh, you know, as a patient when, uh, uh, he'd come see me and I was working over at Western New York PT. And, uh, he, he was always great because he knew, like, he had started his own PT practice and he was really encouraging me to start my own. Like, uh, you know, I'm working there in the company that he had founded and he's, you know, he, he couldn't speak as, as well back then, but he would look at me, he'd be like, get, out <laughs> get out on your own stop doing this and you know, eventually I was able to take his advice and do some stuff but you know for me that was really impactful you know come from him and then of course with you know all of our folks that we are lucky enough to work with uh you know we're definitely shaped by those folks all the time boom that's the first time hearing the story and i work for sean so it's good to know that a lot of a lot of the root of this company comes from al who I held in high regard. He has the white coat ceremony for UB students every year. So even if you don't know much about him, you see that he goes to those, you know, like as much of a struggle as it was for him back in the day, he still went and he made time to get himself to all the white coat ceremonies he could. Yeah. He would send us, uh, he would send me notes on Facebook, you know, all caps and, uh, you know, just like, I have some ideas for you when I get home. You know, you got to go visit this physician or, you know, you got to take cookies or this bakery or just, he always had these, these cool ideas. And, uh, um, he just never stopped with, uh, with everything as far as physical therapy went. He was always still reading more stuff. He read papers, you know, different research articles on things. And you know, certainly it was always trying to come up with something else that would help him. It was funny because I would, absolutely whoop his ass in like a treatment session like he just he loved it and the thing is it's like you think about your toughest workout you know and for him you know every last muscle fiber he's got going he's trying to hold different postural pieces and like the burn he had to experience had to feel like you know running top speed for the last couple hundred yards of like uh, some you know uh, marathon or half marathon that somebody would run like he he really brought it. I just and he did it every time, two days a week. I was always super impressed. 
This one's for Al. This one's for Al. Get some clings. <laughs>